Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm really, really good. I've, I've got exciting news. I'm, I'm selling out of the suburbs, and I'm moving into the desert mountains. My offer has been accepted, and I have a whole new life planned. A lot of hard work in terms of the renovations and stuff, but... Uh, a, a good plan. So very excited. Thank you. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. I spent this weekend uh, shooting automatic weapons on a piece of land in Oklahoma. It was a lot of fun. I was a big fan of the sounds that the AR was making as the bullets ricocheted off the things that we were shooting. Um, took Gus around in this thing called a mule, which is a four-wheeler all-terrain vehicle, and showed him cows and chickens and donkeys and fainting goats and it was just a, a really good time. That sounds like a really exciting thing for you, but certainly for him to have that experience. Uh, it wasn't until I really um, settled in Australia that I, uh, I met a lot of people who had really had the advantage of growing up on the land. Right. And uh, it, it, it opens up so many channels of thought and, and working with your hands and experience with animals in the environment. It, it's, it's just, a, it, it's beyond an education. It's a giant contextualization in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. it's very exciting that he might, you know, begin to, you know, take that on board before he's really, you know, even really truly conscious of it, and maybe when he's still wobbling around. So yeah. I think that's a huge thing to give a young person, a great start in the world. I agree. Yeah, I'm glad you feel that way because I, I feel the same way. Um, again, like you said, he's not making conscious memories of it, but there is still experience happening. This is something that Rios and I have talked about a lot when it comes to places that we're going to be taking him and experiences that we're going to be having with him. Our first thought process being, well, he's young, he can't remember, but at the same time, so what does that mean? Do we just do nothing interesting while he's a kid? I don't think so. I think that taking him out to you know play with animals and get a feel for the big open sky and the brown grass... I think that it's laying a foundation that will lead to an interesting person. Exactly. It's like, you know, it, well, it's eliminating fear. Mm -hmm. You know, if, mm -hmm. if you're not afraid of, of animals and if you're not afraid of water mm -hmm. before, while you're still under four feet high, that's a really good start, you know? Absolutely. Uh, because it's, it becomes very difficult, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we build fear channels, unfortunately, uh, the way we build, you know, attraction channels. And I think that giving a young person, uh, you know, whether it's your child or, or anyone that you know, a friend or, or you know, nephew, niece, whatever, mm -hmm. giving them access to those channels, uh, you activate, you know, a deep inner mind that is ancient and is, is, is there to be activated. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, a lot of, you know, the majority of people in, in urban and suburban situations just don't have those opportunities. And uh, I think that the, it's like learning, you know, a foreign language. Why is it so much easier when you're, you know, tiny? Well, because you're fresh, you're new, yeah. you're flexible, right. you know? So right. build right. the good exactly. channels and not the fear channels, you know? Those will come Absolutely. in in their own time.
you know? And some things we should be afraid of, you know? Sure. Like a charging horse, you know? It's okay to jump out of the way, you know? Or a tick. It is. You know? Yeah, like exactly. That. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. And I think that, you know, mentioning the language thing, that's another educational aspect that Rios and I are very keen on to make sure that he knows multiple languages growing up, but that he also knows how to work with his hands. I had a lot of relatives who were really good with their with their hands. Um, a lot of what you might call hillbillies or rednecks in the family. And the things that I did learn from them are still invaluable to this day because my parents, neither of my parents are very uh, handy in that way. And while I wouldn't go so far as to consider myself handy, I, I, I can make my way around, you know, a car battery or an oil change or something to that effect, right? So, <laughs> excuse me. Well, you know, the other part of it is that, 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 you know, as parents, well, you know, all of us need to face this. You can't look to your partner to be your whole friend network. You can't look to your parents to be the whole network of of education of those skills but when you do get onto the land or if you do have access i mean i think people who are on the land automatically almost have some you know network of of relations whatever their problems might be but you 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 need a you know you need a network of skill teaching Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. no one can do everything no one could do and it's it would be weird if they could it would be yeah it would be weird if they could um, moving into some quick housekeeping. So we are going to get the book club going at the beginning of next year. Chris is recording his first lecture for that. Uh, we would like to do a meetup before Christmas. We're looking at December 17th. So not the upcoming Friday when you listen to this, but the Friday after that. I'll be sending along via Patreon the link so that you can put it in your calendar (coughs) excuse me and we can get that whole thing scheduled up and ready to go we're also uh, starting up some interviews our first being with grant womack who's a friend of chris's and mine Um, he's just an all-around cool guy ex-navy writer father now uh, uh, kind of he's he's management for his uh, girlfriend who's a r&b singer and i've had some pretty uh wild conversations with her and him on the phone that if Chris and I are feeling squirrely, we can coerce him into telling us about. Uh, and Chris, we have some other guests as well. We have uh, the the life, the, the immortalist. The, <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. He's going to need a whole level of introduction, but... Uh, he is a, a futurist and an immortalist. He, he is, a, is a very fine writer. Uh, we'll, we'll tell you more about him. In the, we, we've actually got a range of really interesting guests. We're going to start jumping around a lot because David and I are, are interested in a whole range of things. We will keep to our program of discussions about language and culture, the difference between personal psychology and societal psychology or or psychopathology uh but we're going to introduce a lot of interesting people that will challenge you and inspire you and our theme for the new year is intellectual growth and the building of community around possibilities for ourselves Mm -hmm. as as individual thinkers and 
and connectors because we all are connectors you know that's what language is that's what writers are that's what critical thinking people are very positive frame for uh the new year i, I it's going to be very exciting we're, we're really looking forward to it and uh, i'm very excited about the book club idea and we've got some actual formal courses that we're going to start rolling out probably come this spring want to see uh, you know what the book club response is everything takes a little time to build communities take time relationships take time uh, it takes time to you know build anything cool and we've now done well more than a year's worth of episodes so we thank everyone who has followed us and we we promise you that we are building on that energy and we're going to carry it forward uh, with some even more exciting stuff absolutely Absolutely. So moving into our Week in Doom segment, uh, we have a lot of interesting uh, things to talk about here briefly. But I got to cut you off briefly. I got to cut you God off. God damn it. I always forget this. Yeah. I always forget. I don't yeah. know if it's a subliminal. I'm trying to skirt around it. But I know what are, you're going to you... say. I know what you're going to say. It's time for me to get my creative challenge. For, yes, for you're a little bit squirrely. Uh-huh. You're a little bit squirrely. Now, I, I hope everyone is listening to this. David is an open field runner. He's trying to get away here. Mm-hmm. But we have we have two things that are ongoing, part of a larger psychocultural experiment. He's assigned five words, which I've given him. He has to choose two to integrate into our discussions. And he's been very, very sneaky and good at this. This is kind of building on David's natural sneakiness. Yes. But he tries to avoid these challenges, and this one is not going to be so easy to avoid. Here it is. I uh, was reading again George Orwell's very famous essay, Shooting an Elephant, which I think is a great essay for people to read on multiple levels. But I love elephants, as many of us do. I've, I've ridden elephants in a couple of parts of the world. I think they are sacred animals. Uh, they're, they're just mystical. But even if you've never gotten close to an elephant, I dare say you have heard the expression an elephant in the room. It's something that's a part of the media today, and we actually hear about it a great deal. So, David, I am going to assign you the challenge of making an elephant. You need to create a scenario where there's an elephant in the room. In other words, we need to be able to have a clear sense of this invisible elephant or subject or problem or scenario without any overt or explicit mention of it by you being made. Oh, wow. Okay, okay. Your, yeah. your response can take the form of an imaginative media narrative, real or made up, uh, a story premise, or a personal anecdote. But at the end of the segment, we're going to hear a few minutes of your response and you don't get to mention the elephant in the room, but we're all going to know what it is. Okay. Very interesting. I'll get to thinking about that. The elephant in the room. It's a room. good challenge. I know it's it a little good. bit. This is intense. It's intense. It's a good but, one. But you're, you know, uh, you're, you're worth the intensity. So all there. Right. I like it. Thank you. Okay. I'll get to thinking about that. Um, on to the week in Doom. 
we have lots of stories of governmental overreach in the EU. Um, Italy is cracking down with COVID passports. Uh, England in the UK, I should say. The UK has announced that the COVID ordeal that we're going through now won't be over for another five years. There are massive protests in Austria. Uh, Austria in particular and Germany coming down extremely hard on the COVID front, um, essentially restricting the lives of its citizens if they don't get the jab. All of the things that the conspiracy theorists have been afraid of since the beginning of the COVID pandemic, myself included, are coming true in the EU and good old Australia, where I saw one of the funniest, darkly funny, but funniest headlines of the whole pandemic so far, which is that three teenagers scaled the fence and attempted to escape from the voluntary quarantine camp that they had set up. <laughs> doing a oh, lot dear. of work there. So my week in doom is specifically around these issues because I think that going forward, we are going to be get, no matter what you think of the pandemic to begin with. I'm not. I'm not. I'm completely done arguing over the severity of COVID version one or, co- or the Delta version of COVID. All of that, to my mind, is very firmly in the past because we have moved into the age of Omicron and the South African scientists who first identified Omicron have all come out in public in the news and said that it is in fact highly transmissible but extremely mild they've never seen a severe case of Omicron in any patients not to say that that hasn't happened but this is what viruses do they become endemic they become colds and flus this is what happened with the Spanish flu if you've ever gotten a flu in your lifetime, you've had the Spanish flu because it has mutated. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Mm. yeah. In fact, the Spanish flu is one of the longest running recorded pandemics. It's a 102 year old pandemic. So, uh, or endemic? Pandemic, yeah. Um, so, what I'm getting at here with this overreach and the UK saying this is going to last another five years, they're. They're running out of gas, I think, even with people who are perhaps on board with the initial COVID narrative. Right now, we really only have the hardcore, never COVID click of people who are back on board with Omicron, right? Who are doomsaying and saying this is the end and oh my, all they see is highly transmissible and you'll remember that these are the people who think that this is the black death, that this is something that if you get, you die. And there's, there's no two ways about it. These are the people who I encountered my first one here in Oklahoma this past week. Uh, she was walking out of a Walgreens wearing a mask and clutching a box of wine. And she scooted along the wall so that she, so that she didn't uh, come into contact with any people. So these people are still on board with the Omicron narrative, but there's beginning to be cracks in this whole facade, right? There is, uh, uh, you know, the, the Pfizer data that they wanted to hold off on releasing for 55 years has been released, and it details in the first three months of the vaccine being available over 1,300 deaths from it, 
and about 42,000 injuries from the vaccine. Um, and what you're getting is people who are quite rightly saying with regards to the boosters, you know, when is enough going to be enough? And the governments, the failing governments of places like the EU and Australia, and to a lesser extent, uh, America, although we're much more divided here about it, they don't want to let go of that sweet, sweet power that they've had since early 2020. So I think that this is going to start some real knockdown drag out fights across the entire world. So that's my week in doom for this week. Okay. Well, um, here, here's my, uh, my take on this, which I think in, in a sense harmonizes with it, but it sort of ricochets off it too, because I, I think, uh, you're looking at, not just the disease or diseases or the idea of disease, but but the political implications of it. And I I want to look at the uh, the media presentation of this. Uh, I I actually still have a very strong relationship with NPR, which some of uh, your listeners may or our listeners may may just think well that's kind of surprising no it's not really uh you know because david and i jump around across boards uh you know we're not so easily pinned down uh as some people uh within the writerly arts community are uh but i noticed uh a story on NPR about um, a kind of one-to-one, you know, relationship between COVID cases in America and Trump supporting jurisdictions, Mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting. And I'm not saying that isn't something that should, you know, shouldn't be, I, I think everything should be investigated and David supports that. You know, we want more investigation, not less. But on the other hand, I have not seen any sort of sign within American boundaries where there has been real discussion within the mainstream media uh, outside of one particular cable news network uh, that looks at the resistance to vaccine mandates from, say, and in particular, the African-American community, Mm -hmm. because this conflicts with a narrative. And narrative is something that David and I have looked at. It's something we all need to look at. It's one of the most uh, media-used words, Uh, and I have really good analytics to support that. Um, And yet, we're also now seeing this international resistance to mandates, as a question of civil liberties and overreach on the part of governments, which is kind of a a euphemism for authoritarianism. Uh, And I wonder where it's possible to find a kind of coherent, fair-minded, open look at the question of how this pandemic has been managed in socio-political terms. And I would suggest that that's nearly impossible. I really don't believe there's any vehicle, I, and I've looked very hard into this from the major you know, forces, whether it be the New York Times 
or the BBC, two media outlets in different media that I've, I've had great respect for in the past and I've, I've lost respect for. I don't know if, if there's any presentation of this subject uh, and there are many other topics we could raise in this week in doom. I think that, that we're, we're rich in them. We've had you know, school massacres. We've had all sorts of strange court cases emerging. It's very hard to keep up with the week in doom. But sticking with this theme of the COVID management and now this new version of Omicron, I wonder if where we can look to a coherent picture of the social response to this, not just in American terms, but worldwide. Mm-hmm. Do you see anywhere you can get that? I don't. I don't know. I. I mean, I. I'm as I think aware of world media as as you know, pretty much the average person is. But I'm you know I do teach that subject from time to time, um, and I just don't see any real coherent. Uh, balanced view right. of what's going on well as far as balance goes that's the tricky word right that is definitely um as far as your sources go there are websites like unlimited hangouts uh, gateway pundit is a completely nutty drudge report style far right website um that reports on things that you don't see in the mainstream media although it's a bit tricky to wade through if you're someone like me or you, because it's so uh, tabloid, you know, there's just, the, the, you look at it and you think, oh my God, this is, they're going to try to sell me colloidal silver here pretty soon. So the balance issue is where it gets tricky. I think that if you're the type of person who can hold two narratives in your head at once, I do think that websites like Unlimited Hangout are good um both counterbalances and f- sort of uh, fillers. They can fill in a lot of the the dead space around news stories. I think this really comes down to an issue of media literacy because, the as you know, uh, the way that media goes now, everybody's hurting for money. They're hard up, so they're going to play to their bases as hard as they can. And so I think a little bit of sort of internal synthesis is going to be necessary what i've done as i said before is that i do go to what some people would consider to be the sewers of the internet which often more than not have links to original source material that you can then uh, you can put it into an excel spreadsheet you can save it into a folder as i do and you can begin to to look at all of it and create a coherent picture uh, in your head but i'm afraid i don't have a good answer to your question in terms of of one source that is well-balanced and reasonable worldwide? Well, to preempt sort of, uh, I think, where uh, we are going with the second segment in terms of larger cultural issues, I, I would suggest that the whole problem here uh, revolves and devolves to a confusion about biology versus sociology right and i think we're seeing this on multiple levels and i think it's also about cause and effect which is a really deep idea maybe the deepest idea that human civilization has ever come up with uh 
because the animals aren't going about. Oh, this is cause and effect. You know, right. you know, yeah. you know. Yeah. They're yeah. they're not doing that. They're not doing that. Mm-hmm. They're they're working with it in a different way at least. Um, if I put my paw in that trap, you know, yeah. you know, yeah, they're they're dealing with certain aspects, but I think we can easily mistake that. Um, so there are some some deeper issues there. Um, I think you know, David, that what you and I might have to do for the end of the year, uh, and I always hate these end of the, the best records of, of 2021 or the best, yeah. you know, it just drives me, it, it almost drives me as nutty as here comes Santa Claus right down Santa Claus Lane. If you want to drive me psychotic, that's my CIA torture song. Yeah. That's one of them. Uh-huh. That's one of them. Uh, but we might have to do, uh, and we want to steer people to our, our website, which is kind of bare bones at the moment, but we're filling it out with good content. I think we might have to do a wrap-up of the year in Doom, our highlights, mm. because I think there are so many interesting things that are just as uh, complex and I think just as implicatory I think that's a word. I just made it up. Uh, as as COVID is actually, we've had some major court cases. We've got some really interesting court cases going on now. We've got so much fallout and strangeness. We've got a presidency that is in the tank in terms of the polls, and we have all sorts of people who supported that administration and you know i i'm not going to exclude myself from that who are scrambling around now to uh you know to find the positive and uh there ain't no positive um if you've been shopping lately or if you've been buying gas or if you have half a brain you know there's just so much i mean we've had not only we've had 52 weeks in doom and i think what about like doing a kind of a a rodeo roundup yeah. of our favorite calamities and disjunctions over the year. Uh, we'll both pitch in some copy, put put that on the website because there's just it, it's just too much to cover in 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 a podcast segment. Sure. We're, we're we're too rich in in complete uh, atrocity and bizarreness now. We're 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 neck deep in it, and we I think we've got to savor it. I agree. Yeah, no, I think that's a great idea. No, I think that's wonderful. We can get started on that. We can start compiling that very soon um, and have that on the website just as soon as we put that all together. Um, As far as the week in Doom goes, I know there was some Doomy-type writerly issues that you wanted to talk about. Would you like to get into those uh, now, or or what what do you think? Well, I, I just want to throw out a couple of thoughts here. Um, you know, and I, I one of the things that I'm really sad about is that it if you raise the simple question, and I'm not talking about a rhetorical question, I'm talking about a genuine question in social media, that you think, look, I'm, I, I have some concern or connection with this issue, but I'm really not sure what to think. Well, not only do people tell you what to think, they instantly attack you, you know, often just for raising a question. And I think that's really bogus and is one of the things that is getting me tired about 
uh, my participation in social media because I'm talking about full-grown adults here, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and people who are claiming education and critical thinking skills. So I have two, I have two things that have been on my mind. I feel as if there has been, and David and I have talked about this, that I think we've tried to be balanced. We've said that a kind of censorship, not just cancel culture, but pre, pre even getting out into culture, has been driven now not just by the right, which is what I grew up with facing as, as the, the opposition. It was so easy to be, you know, liberal and, and a Democrat and a rebel. You know, it was so easy when I was 18 or 25. I don't feel that way now. I feel there's an enormous, censorious uh, sort of force that is enacted now by the left. I think wokeism and cancel culture are uh, cancerous evils. And I'm, you know, I'm going to say it just like that. I think they're evils. I think they're not just wrong-headed. I think they're deeply anti-culture. So we've now got problems coming from left and right. I know a couple of, of books that have been in the news, and they've been in the news on both sides, MSNBC, Fox News. They've gotten kind of bipartisan coverage in America. And there is a kickback against them being in uh, basically high school and junior high school libraries. And... My view of that is that there are some books that maybe shouldn't be in those libraries, but they certainly shouldn't be canceled at large. Mm-hmm. My book, Private Midnight, which I'm hoping, you know, still working hard to be made into uh, a TV series, I believe in that book, but I'm not sure that I would want minors to be reading that book necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, an, that's a question, you know, this is being now played on the liberal front as being, oh, these are, you know, terrible Republicans and parents who are over-concerned about what's going on in their schools. Well, yeah, I think they should be. And I think that there's a question of access and availability and age appropriateness. I mean, surely that's important. I mean, I think age appropriateness is something that's a valid concern across life. I mean, I, I'm not out dating 25-year-olds or 35-year-olds, I might add. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I think that there's a question about that. The other issue that's, that, that has broken lately is uh, the Alice uh, Siebold uh, story about Lucky, which was her breakthrough memoir. Uh, she's also the author of, of The Lovely Bones, which was an enormous commercial success. So she has had an authorial career and income that very few writers uh, can expect. I mean, I was at the Squaw Valley Writers Community when her agent you know, mm-hmm. presented on her behalf and told the story of this multi-million dollar you know, franchise at the time. I haven't heard that much from her since those two books or and the movie, The Lovely Bones, which I uh, didn't think much of. But lately, it has come to uh, cultural awareness that the man who was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to prison, who happens to be black, for the rape when she was at Syracuse University, which forms the basis of the memoir, Lucky. Mm-hmm. So we have an incident, one incident, a rape, 
as the, the basis of an entire book, which builds a writer's franchise. Mm -hmm. And franchise is my, I'm, I'm choosing that word because I think that's an enormous amount of money that has been delivered at a career, uh, not just one publication. Uh, it, I don't mean to say that it was a serial franchise, but it certainly set up the lovely bones and has made an enormous amount of money. Well, as it turns out, the, the wrong guy got sent to prison. And I think Alice Sibold, uh made the most graceful formal apology that she could. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I don't think that she had much choice. Her publisher, Simon & Schuster, have removed the book from circulation and suggested that it somehow needs a revision. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I just am not certain how I th what, what to think about this. I, I don't think she, as a person or as a writer, is to blame. Uh, I, I just think that would be unfair. Mm -hmm. I don't think the publisher has done anything wrong exactly, but I, I feel a little bit uncomfortable as if I've consumed, you know, a glass or two of outdated milk. Mm. So that's my thought, David. I don't know. I don't. So I, to go back to my starting point, I don't have answers. These are questions I have. As a writing, thinking person, part of the publishing world, right. insofar as I can be, right. I, I'm not making any statements. I'm genuinely asking questions. Mm -hmm. I, I'm uneasy about things, and I, I don't know what to think. So I'm asking, what do you think? <laughs> well, when it comes to books being in high school or middle school libraries, I think that oh, that is such a tough question because i'm of two minds about it on the one hand if we're talking about i mean you know it's one of those ideas where if you go to the extreme with it like what if there was a copy of justine in a high school library right i right. think i think we'd all agree that that's inappropriate um when you get to uh, perhaps some of the books that were like i wouldn't want justine i wouldn't want dennis cooper to be in a high school library and dennis cooper is one of my favorite authors so i think that everyone to a certain extent agrees that some bit of discretion is necessary because that to my mind is what what school really is you're teaching kids how to think but you're also you're also in some ways shielding them and you're you're giving them heavy stuff in a filtered type of way. I recently when I was visiting family this weekend I, I was talking to my niece who's 13 and apparently her mother has been on a tear uh, through her school because her teacher has not necessarily been saying inappropriate things to the students but she's been uh, giving them a bit too much of her her own life right so she'll come into the classroom and say you know you guys gave me an anxiety attack yesterday well that's not appropriate for a teacher to tell students you're supposed to be a teacher and you know you're supposed to keep those issues at home my point being that educators are there to act as uh, discerning disseminators of information and i think that it really comes down to what you think is appropriate and inappropriate for for children to really be reading about at the end of the day and that's where people get it that's what people are actually getting into into fights about so if it's something that is perhaps 
uh, maybe sexually inappropriate for a 13, 14, 15-year-old kid to read. At that point, you're getting into a debate about sex positivity versus sex negativity, which is just a very strange argument to be having in general. Childhood is complex, and you're going to find out. I mean, I, I actually did the classic thing of, you know, my buddies having playboys in the woods. You know, I know it's a cliche, but that's what it is. There was a stand of trees close by where we lived, and there were magazines under a rock. You know, so we figured stuff out. We watched movies <laughs> that we weren't supposed to. That makes to. me feel better. Yeah, I, I, yeah. That's my experience, too. You know? <laughs> yeah, but I, but I think that it comes down to what you think is appropriate and, I, and what you think the role of an educator actually is, right? So, you know, you're supposed to be, uh, there's supposed to be this sense with, with adults that they are adults for a reason and that mystery is important, that they live adult lives that... You know, we as children, speaking for the children now, we as children don't live that life, and so in a sense, it's not that we're shielded from it, but it's just it's just private. You know, we live in such a a, a society of transparency, right? And transparency is a is really a, a tool of control, or at least it has been. You know, I mean, there's good transparency. You want to know what your government is up to, but there, you know, transparency has really gone off the rails. And people don't have any sense of being a bit opaque about things. So I I think that it's a tricky question. The first one's a very tricky question. The second the second one is also extremely tricky. I read Lucky a long time ago. I remember the beginning, which contains uh, the raping question, because it is very visceral. It's very uh, powerfully written. Uh, I don't know if in the context of the book. I'm assuming she doesn't name anybody. That feels like that would be illegal. Um, but maybe it's not. Maybe when you're convicted of something, maybe you can do that, in which case it would need to be amended so that this innocent man doesn't have his name out there being slandered as a rapist. But the the idea that this was built on uh, not a lie and not a mistake, because the issue isn't that uh, Siebold was was or wasn't raped. I think that's clear that that did happen. Uh, but it's bas- but it's the wrong person, right? They got the wrong guy. Um, so with that in particular, it feels symbolically to me uh, to be kind of emblematic of this sort of rise of the memoir as such a powerful thing in literature in general. Uh, but perhaps people getting a little bit too carried away with uh, believing authors 100%. Does that make mm, does that make interesting point. Yeah, yeah well, that makes you See what I'm look, saying? Look, I, I I think everyone I think everyone is on board with what you're saying and I think that's a very strange truth that the publishing industry, the book selling industry, everyone has kind of tried to steer around that and they make it out to be, you know, we had this whole thing of a million little pieces being like, well, that's not really true, Uh you know, well, maybe, you know, really, I mean, did any, we're having these discussions about truth uh, in, in an era when we've got Photoshop in terms of, you know, photography, no, no one had these no one had these great questions in the past about uh, believing authors a hundred percent, or, or rather, uh, maybe the better way to put it is to abandon uh, 
credulity and, and, and sovereignty as a reader. Yeah. I think that's more the point. And authenticity. It, it's not what, you, it's not what you, you assign to an author. It's what you give up mm. as a reader and critical mm-hmm. thinker mm-hmm. that I think is the issue. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it becomes, I mean, actually nothing has happened that isn't a good thing. Right. I mean, really, you, you look at the way the, uh, the unfortunate uh, wrong uh, sentencing, or wrong conviction and wrong sentencing as a result happened, it came through a film editor, as I understand it, yeah. reviewing details mm-hmm. and thinking, well, wait a minute, this just doesn't add up. So in, in a sense, it's a very powerful uh, demonstration of how a little bit more review mm-hmm. of every case, and there have been thousands of these. There are thousands of them that never get this attention, where we think, well, wait a minute, and it's not just new forensics or DNA or uh, bad court procedure or whatever. I mean, those are all sort of just the mechanisms, but it really comes down to let's have a more considered look at things. Yeah, you know, yeah. maybe we don't need to rush. To judgment. I mean, why is the rush to judgment a phrase? That's an interesting idea, you know, a more considered opinion. Um, so I, I look, yeah, I, I think that's the real issue. I think it's it's not about uh, the individual author, uh, anything the publishing company did necessarily differently than any other publishing company. But I think it, the issue does revolve around. The idea of the memoir, which is still very controversial and I think uh, deeply flawed as a literary genre. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the idea that it's set in stone. You know, what, what, what is exactly set? I mean, that may be the problem. When I started, when I wrote my memory book, and I called it a memory book, Sea Monkeys, I was concerned because the idea of a memoir, I thought that was something that Winston Churchill did at the end of his life. Right. You know, those kind of people, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So, and, and then, because they were famous figures, there was a duty of care on the part of the editors or maybe even, you know, quietly a ghostwriter, but someone to do some fact-checking. Yeah. But then, also, there was the assumption that things would be challenged, mm-hmm. that it would be seen as a subjective, uh, personal view of things, and that it wouldn't be taken as gospel, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've lost all of those disciplines. Um, but you know, in a way, uh, I, Dave, I think you raised some really interesting points about the first uh, issue that I raised about uh, the appropriate thing which and i'm not sure we're going to get past this because i think we've actually uh if this is still the week in doom i think we're still on it because there are a couple of things that you triggered in my mind Mm -hmm. um so we're going off script a little bit here which is not that we ever have a script yeah absolutely Uh, and i'm and i'm i'm totally fine with that did you want to push the main segment out a bit because we're about we're about 45 minutes deep but this is a great conversation so i'll Leave that up to you. Which which way do you think you want to do it? Look, I, I think that we need to uh, touch on our main top, getting back to uh, some of the points we suggested we were going to follow up on last time. Mm-hmm. 
I, I think that's got to be another episode, okay. honestly, yeah. because I, I've got something. Yeah, I'm fine with that. You, you, you really kicked into an important point about uh, <clears throat> this issue of, which appears to be an issue of what is put before uh, minors in school libraries and this larger kerfuffle about school curricula and <clears throat> what parents should be saying about things and and really it it, it always tees back to sex yeah, it does. and and what it does. what triggers in my mind is I I, I think that's um, in Australian terms a furphy I love that expression I don't know if every this a furphy was kind of a rumor or what well, means a blind it means kind of a red herring but a furphy was a rumor that started at the water uh, hole, watering supply during World War One. So it's sort of scuttlebutt, but it kind of means a red herring. It means a blind. It means uh, a distraction from the real issue. And I think that there's a question that all education hinges on, both the educations that, that are delivered to us or administered by older people when we're uh, pre-adult, and David and I have spoken about the problem of uh, initiation rights and, and growing to maturity, you know. Uh, this has been an ongoing anthropological theme of ours. But I think it also matters when, when we are adults fully and, 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 and are controlling things. It's about timing. It's about timing in life when things arrive. And it's not just... I think that it's, a, it's so unfortunate and it's such a sign of immaturity within American society that the only time we worry about this is in regards to sex and gender, really. Right. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's about much bigger things. And I, I want to give two extremely different metaphor analogies here. Well, one's a metaphor analogy and one's a, a more uh, just straight example. Uh when I was learning uh, about setting explosives, and uh, my my teacher was uh, well, he, let's just say it. He was a fat Italian guy who worked at the Bluestone Quarry uh, around the corner from my property on the land in Australia. And it, if you wanted to uh, start a grave in that part of Central Victoria, which is kind of like uh, the California Gold Rush country and that was why I was there because that place that part of California was very spiritual to me so I wanted a, an analog to that but the ground was so hard that you just you know forget two strong men with pickaxes that you, you'd get to that maybe in the past but you really wanted you know some gelignite you know mm -hmm. to get a grave started mm -hmm. so and certainly you want some some serious explosives if you're blowing up bluestone, which is a, a really you know beautiful but intense form of granite, and the idea was, well, no, you don't just set one charge, you set a stage charge, one, two, three, you know, and I think people could. This isn't first act, second act, third act, which are kind of equally balanced. This is an exponential thing. Okay, it's geometric in progression, and. I think that works across a lot of ideas of staged development, staged explosions within the mind. That's what I try to do as a teacher, and I'm working at the older end, the mature end, but I still think that works. But if you look across your own growth, 
you know, as, as a student in any way, there's a difference in the way the first grade teacher approaches things to the sixth grade teacher, to when you're a senior in high school, to when you're hopefully in college or university, maybe. But there's a staged set of explosions of mind. So that's a metaphor that I want I like that forward. metaphor a lot. Yeah, that's great. The other thing is like a really specific example. I, uh, I was introduced to the writings of, well, several people, but I want to use this as an emblem here, Graham Greene, uh, who I think is a tremendous prose stylist. He was immensely prolific. He is a, known as a, a great contributor to the English language across his four most famous novels, but I think he worked so well in, you know, across every genre. I didn't really get him when I was 18. I didn't get him when I was 22. I started to get him a little bit in my mid-30s, and now I really get him. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think that's a tribute to his work, not something that's problematic. I don't think that I mean, I can't read J.D. Salinger's extremely famous and rightfully iconic Catcher in the Rye yep. now. Right. I read that I in about to... sixth grade, I think, and I loved it, yeah. but I haven't read it since. I, I think that many people would agree with that, and I frankly couldn't teach it. I, I find it hard to teach uh, The Lord of the Flies. I'm just not... I've done that. I, I can teach a high wind in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. I still think I can do that. Uh, but I think there are th there are times in your life for certain things, for certain kinds of music, for certain kinds of songs, for certain kinds of art. If you had shown me a Mark Rothko painting in the flesh, I mean, not in a book, the most beautifully printed $500 book, I'm talking about bringing me face to face with a Mark Rothko painting which is a very, very privileged thing to be able to experience. If you'd done that to me when I was 18, I would And I'm a pretty, you know, imaginative, sensitive, interested, curious person. I still wouldn't have gotten it. Right. I just, I wouldn't have connected. And I think this is true across so many things. So my, 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 my problem, my round off connection is, it concerns me that particularly in this American education debate, we immaturely obsess on issues about sex and gender, which are such a giant obsession. You know, are you genderqueer? Are you gender binary? I mean, I get why parents are concerned about that. I really, really do. And I want to follow up on this in, in our next segment because I have a lot to say about... Uh, psychology over biology mm -hmm. and our obsession with sociology as opposed to culturology or cosmology mm -hmm. i'm 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 very tired of what the american framework is on that but i think we need to blow the whole issue of what is presented to young people up to being far more about the world rather than just about what's between your legs or how you feel about yourself, you know. Obviously those are important things growing up. We all know that. But if that's the only issues that we face, well then I think we've got a real problem. And I will just end the rant with 
the university I have been most recently affiliated with, in a, this is in an entirely different register, but it, I think it does connect because it's about timing and it's about what is missed. You know, we talk about journalism and we talk about the stories, how they're covered, but also the stories that aren't covered. Well, the university I've been connected with now has seriously first level of introduction, as in there are two and three levels of introduction to pre-calculus mm -hmm. at the university level. Well, to me, that looks like you'll be, if you manage to, you know, survive, you'll be in your third year of university before you actually confront calculus. Mm -hmm. And I think for an awful lot of the applications and future levels of study that depend on calculus, uh, well, you're kind of looking at being like 40 before you, you know, get anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so there's a remedial level here. And, but I, I, it does concern me that the literary book concerns have so much to do with, I think, a very juvenile idea of sex and gender. And the idea is, well, we should expose everyone to everything. No, I don't think so. I think we should always respect timing is really important. Timing is really the issue. How we present people with the right information at the right moment in their lives. That's what good teaching is, whether you're a parent or a professional educator. And it shouldn't just devolve to the level of sex and gender. Mm -hmm. I'm done. So, yeah, so there are two things going on there. The, the first being, or well, actually, I'll tackle the second first, which is that everything shouldn't be so concerned uh, with sex and gender, and that, that isn't necessarily where the fight should be. You're basically making an argument for, and we're speaking strictly about literature here, but like what literature actually is. Um, and I think that looking at it on the, the pure level of a communicative art form, uh, that tells stories, opens the world up to people. Um, I think that there's a lot more going on with them than just simple representations of sex and gender, as you do, as you're saying. So I think that this kind of goes back to sort of the first point, this controlled demolition metaphor is huge. And I think it's, I think it's very important and something that I'll be thinking of uh, as a father, as a matter of fact. But I think that this um, this is the main issue for me, right? Uh, it doesn't the the discussions about sex and gender I, I find just as tedious as you do. But I'd want to take what you were saying in the first place a little bit further because I think that it is important to expose um, growing children and young adults to certain pieces of art at certain times where it can really affect them, right? But I also think about the um, the meta role of the teacher in general, and I wonder if you know several generations of this kind of base focus on sex and gender issues, on whether certain things follow, uh, or I say things, what I mean is works of art follow the approved neoliberal checklist. Uh, what we end up with is actually teachers who are just as concerned with the inconsequential minutiae that the children are obsessed with. It's a given that kids are going to care about dumb, inconsequential stuff. Who's the coolest in school? Who likes who? 
who's uh you know who's fake who's real whatever it's hard for me to remember high school but the teachers shouldn't be that way the teachers should be in my mind elevated above this and they should appear to students to be uh otherworldly beings i remember do you remember ever have you ever seen a teacher of yours when say you were in elementary school or high school you saw them like getting groceries and it blew your mind that, yeah. that, that your teacher was like was out with her husband and they're you know what are they buying they're buying steaks that's i didn't even think you were a person because you're you're not supposed to think of them that way they're they're just as tied to the classroom they're they're the classroom is an external representation of the inside of their mind and when you step into that classroom you're in their zone and you're supposed to feel like you're in some capable almost inhuman hands that can do that controlled demolition when it's when it's supposed to happen do you want somebody who's doing a controlled demolition before they do it to tell you about the anxiety attack that they had the night before no probably not because that's not going to instill a lot of confidence and that's going to corrupt the the transmission of what's supposed to be very important for children so for me i would just expand on what you're saying into you know the the timing is necessary but but also the the presentation of it is extremely important as well and when you have teachers and and you know parents fighting over uh, whether xyz book should be or shouldn't be available i mean it's it, it's so out, outside of this kind of i feel like professionalism that kids should be seeing kids shouldn't see you having the same concerns because you know i can hear in my head the the argument that would be made for these books to be available to whoever and it's something that i said a bit earlier in this episode about well they already know about all that anyway and it's like well they they don't they know their version of it and it's it's just it's it's not time for that demolition yet i love the idea of that presentation and timing i think that's like connecting space and time yeah. i don't know if anyone's ever uh consumed you know two hundred dollar champagne in a styrofoam cup ah. i gotta tell you it's not the same right. as a beautiful crystal flute yeah. you know right. and uh I, I was out the first time i ever did a real serious sailing thing outside of land and uh the guy who was the skipper, uh, one of the crew, you know, one of the people, like we weren't, we were, we were paying to, to learn, and you know, called him Bill, and he said, "No, I, I'm I'm captain," mm-hmm. and and everyone, you know, there was a moment of freak out. It's like, oh my God, he's going to do like an Ahab thing on us, and we're going. No, it, it it you salute the uniform. You know, mm-hmm. that's the thing, mm-hmm. right, you know, right. and that's a really important idea. And, and it is important about presence and it's important about being, you know, it, stage magic. You know, you, you got to be involved in the whole thing and respect boundaries. And it is about presentation as well as timing. And everyone wants to be friends and get along with kids. And, and you know, it's like be one of the kids. No, no. That's not how you be a good coach, mentor, teacher, parent, leader, you know, figure of inspiration. No, you have the courage 
Maybe you're not larger than life. Very few of us are. But just have the, the courage to be a figure of leadership. And that's part of the whole educational package. And this is what, part of what everyone is failing in within the educational system. Or not everyone, but an enormous number of people because they want to be liked. Yeah, you know? that's the... There's a lot to go into there. I think that the issue that I raised earlier about transparency, how we live in mm. a transparency society, we live in an authenticity society, uh, all of those things uh, are directly tied into the the like. It's all these are all words. All these words that we're using are elements of uh, you know control, basically. These are all elements of control because we as a society have been turned into people who instead of having bosses that exploit us we now kind of exploit ourselves and so you see adults now who are concerned with things like being transparent with students well you shouldn't you shouldn't be you shouldn't be or being authentic to students you shouldn't be you should keep some things to yourself they shouldn't know everything that there is to know about you and i'm not even sure if students should like you in that sense you know like do you like you want a student to think that a, a teacher is educated um intelligent uh capable measured maybe caring uh understanding all of these things but you don't necessarily want your student to say oh man i really i want to go out for a beer with chris you know? No, no, you don't want that. You want a level of professional respect, you know? I, and, you know, people are so willing to assign authority over to, to figures and, and commercial mechanisms, whatever, you know, all the time. So, yet they have a problem when it comes to an individual, you know? And I, I, I absolutely think that's right. I, I have no desire to to want to just be liked. I want to be respected as a teacher, as a leader. Uh, when I was an expedition leader, I, you know, I would say, no, we're not all equal here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're, we're not. I, I'm directing where things are going. And if anyone falls apart, it's my fault. Right. And it's not your fault. Yeah. You know, so don't put it on me that we're all going to be equal. You know, because that's not right. We're not equally liable, are we? No, you know? no, no, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so there well, we go. I think that was a good digression. I enjoyed that digression very much. I think we needed that. I think that, that yeah. we needed that. And, mm -hmm. and you triggered it, and I think it was good. And I think this is, you know, I, I hope, you know, people listening will appreciate that we are just improving this and we're working on where the energy flows and we yeah look we've got a whole sort of you know thing we're going to get back to and swirl around and intertwine with but that that felt to me like something that was important that needed to be talked about so yeah i 100 percent agree so for my creative challenge today i have one for you uh i'm not very happy with it so i'll give it to you today but I'd also like a week to think about a better one. Is that all right? Fair enough. Okay. Fair enough. Well, look, I, 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 fair enough because this is a hard one. Mm -hmm. mm. So we have a young gentleman who's going home for the holidays. He is living in the big city, all caps. That can be any city that you want. And he's going home to his backwards redneck 
family, right? His father, who's a Vietnam vet, who's stuck in his old ways. His mother, who's quiet, but, you know, just kind of goes the way her father goes. His flatulent uncle, Larry. A bunch of hayseed <laughs> children who run a, who jump through windows. And he's thinking to himself, <laughs> these people just don't, they just don't get me, right? And he's, he's bringing along his partner. He's bringing along his boyfriend. And, Ooh, and, he, okay. and so he's, he goes and, and he eats dinner and his father says, not allowed in my house. He's not allowed in my house. I'm sorry. I know it's old fashioned, but he's not allowed in my house. So our protagonist here is very upset by this. Mother presents them with this beautiful spread, this beautiful dinner turkey, cranberry sauce, stuffing, all the great Thanksgiving stuff, right? Well, our hero makes his plate, but he only stacks it with apples, carrots, and a little bit of pumpkin pie. And then he goes out back to where his boyfriend <laughs> where his boyfriend is waiting for him and decides to sleep outside. So the elephant in the room is that uh, is that his boyfriend is a horse. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, so okay. give me some time to think of a better one that's more of a joke than, look, than the actual thing. I think thing. that was a f- well look that was a fun improv on yeah. that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think we should encourage uh, listeners to write into the butterflyinyourmouth.com to evaluate David's response to that challenge and whether or not we're going to let him off the hook. Well, uh, they can that do that. That was good improv, that, man. They can do that, and that's totally fine. But personally, I, I can do better. I know I can do better. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to, whether or not you know you liked that or hated it, uh, I'm, I'm not pleased. I'm not well. I'm not a hundred percent pleased with it. I got, I amused myself, but it's not really doing what the, what I think the exercise is intended to do. So okay, no, no, no. Look, we want you to be happy. We want you to be happy with your response. <laughs> no, you, you've got to, you've got to tell us. I mean, it's kind of a weightlifting thing, yeah, you know. Right. If you haven't, if you don't feel like you really, you know, pushed it. Mm-hmm. And and kind of you know uh, strained yourself a little bit. Then then the exercise isn't done. So I'll, you'll get a rematch on that. I think that's mm-hmm. fair enough. That's a very difficult exercise. I recommend that to people, uh, whether or not they're teachers or writers or artists. I think it's worth thinking about because it's about negative space, mm-hmm. uh, which is a beautiful idea. But it's not negative space in just in in physical artistic terms. It's it's conceptual. And it's really leaving something open to uh, reader-listener interpretation. But it's also drawing on mechanisms of tired uh, understanding, you know? Okay. And we're trying to refresh those. How do you refresh systems of, of understanding? Which, of course, can become systems of misunderstanding. But oftentimes, they're just systems of ignorance and boredom. And, and trying to revitalize those. And elephants in the room are an exciting way to think about that. So we'll give you, uh, we'll give you a B on that. How does that sound? I'm happy with that. I'm, I'm happy okay. with that. And I'll, I'll come back with some, with some A-plus work. 
So today, okay. do we have a do we have practical tip and, and dream? Yes, we do. Excellent. Yes, we do. Excellent. Okay. All right. Again, this is uh, we you know we're trying to work on a high level of of concept, but to keep things really practical, really achievable, and for by and large free. You know, I don't want you to have to go out. Uh, we have recommended an app about speaking backwards, but that's free. So we want to keep things simple. All right, so here's the question. You have to work on this in real time, all right? Real time. What is the very first image that appears to you when you think of the human-made world? Go. Done. Okay. Right. First thought, best thought. Okay. Okay. Now this is, you know, we talked about timed explosions. You can take more time with this, but now as best you can try to draw this image. It doesn't matter how well you draw, mm -hmm. just as long as you can recognize it as the image, the conceptual idea that you had in your mind. Mm -hmm. If you absolutely need to, and this is okay, you can Google on a photographic image, you know, probably a very standard image. That's okay. Try to have, though, as physical an expression of the conceptual image you first instantly had and preferably in your hands. If you've, if you've drawn it on a, on a piece of paper, then you've got it. If you have it as a Google photograph, then print it out, please. Okay, this is core human magic, emblem, sigil, the idea of abstraction made concrete. It's the greatest human magic, the beginning of the whole program. But I suggest that the image that appeared in your mind says something very important about your deep attitude to humanity and to a range of other really fundamental dichotomies and binaries that haunt human consciousness, and certainly language. I want you to meditate on this image for a bit. You can decide what a bit means. If it's an hour of focused time, if you put it aside in a desk drawer, or maybe have it, you know, taped to your bathroom mirror, give it a little time just to settle, please. This is worth doing. But the idea here is that this is a possible subject for revision. Revision, think about that. Revision. We often just take that for granted. You know, mm -hmm. it's a big idea. It is much easier to enhance, to supplement, or outright counteract a single discrete image than an entire program of life and philosophical values. Mm. I want you to think about that. You've identified something fundamental about your approach, your instantaneous, instinctive attitude to what human-made means with an enormous number of implications mm -hmm. about the natural world, the animal world, babies, innocent, you know, all sorts of stuff. So you've given yourself a frame of reference for a possible true revision Remember last time, last segment we talked about it's little changes that affect giant shifts in mind and consciousness. That's the psyops, brainwashing, propaganda lesson. 
from the bad people. And it's a good lesson for us good people. So you've got an idea in mind that you can revise. You know, I could suggest a whole bunch of things that might have crossed your mind. I've got one in front of me. And I think, well, what can I, how can I rethink that? Mm. How can I rejig not my whole life, not my whole pattern of thinking, not all of human civilization and what it means to be man-made or human-made. How can I just look at that one image as something that I can work with? So that's the practical tip. Do you, I have my drawing in front of me. Do you want to know what it is? Yeah, it, I do. <laughs> it's, it's a pen. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's a beautiful image. Yeah. I think that's... You know, yeah. I think that's a great starting place on, on you know, on, on from many points of view. That's mm -hmm. what popped up. All right. Dream time. Well, all right. Okay. So I think I've said that I've been recording dreams for almost as long as David's been alive. Honestly, I hate to say that, mm -hmm. but, you know, mm -hmm. got to say the truth sometimes. So and I put in a lot of time to um, develop an index of those dreams. So in terms of general subjects and motifs and stuff, I, I can kind of, not at the press of a button, but pretty quickly access to what extent these things have repeated. And and this is a repetition, this is, this is a motif that appears often in my dreams of uh, big cats. You know, Borges said it's so easy not to think of a tiger. Well, as it turns out, it's not that easy for me. Mm -hmm. I've had tigers a lot of times in my dreams, and they have repeated at several points in regards to two things. Uh, an attack on my dingo, mm -hmm. who lived with me for 15 years. Uh, she died at 16, and she was very capable of protecting herself, not necessarily against a tiger. But also my grandmother, who is kind of the, the real fundamental uh, parental figure growing up. She was the nurturing point in very physical, literal terms, but certainly symbolic dream terms. And I've had uh, at least six dreams uh, in, in the last 10 years that, re that revolve around saving my dingo, my female dog spirit, or my grandmother from some sort of roving tiger or leopard. Uh, the leopard does get in there at one point, but oftentimes tigers. So I don't, I dispute Boris saying it's easy not to think of a tiger. Um, but the other night I had a dream that was, that was different. It was a variation on this theme. It focused on the two key dogs in my life, the dingo and uh, the mastiff, the world's number one mastiff as I called him. Uh, both of them are dead, uh, but they've been, lived very long, happy lives. The Mastiff was my uh, girlfriend Karen's dog, and she left him with me as kind of a, uh, well, a guardian, and a guardian for the dingo. Um, and in the dream, they were uh, beset by a range of big cats, a range of them from uh, tigers and, a, and sort of a lion base, an actual lion, and some, a panther, uh, but a creature that looked like, kind of like an ocelot, you know? Uh, but what was interesting about the dream 
and it was it confused me within the dream because I think I uh, connected back to the memories of needing to support and protect my two dogs from these larger predatory animals. These animals weren't actually that predatory in the dream. They were all bedraggled. I love that word bedraggled. They were uh, not emaciated, but not, not in good shape. And they needed protection. And actually the dogs, my two dogs, great spirits, the male, uh, the mastiff was a male, the dingo a female. Um, they were actually getting along with these animals. And I sensed this enormous shift in my dream, my personal dream mythology of not attacking or needing to protect the dogs, but actually also needing to look out for these large cats. And that's the first time that that mythology, that arc of, or narrative, you know, storyline within my dream network going across 30 years now has ever happened. So I, I'm not sure what to make of that, but uh, the predatory cats actually needed my protection, not just my dog spirits protection from them. Hmm. Fascinating. I'd have to think about that. Me too. I don't know. I don't know if there's an easy answer to that. I think it's interesting, though, and I encourage people to to try to record dreams where possible. It does interrupt, uh, you know, interrelationships with partners. It, it you know it could disrupt morning sex. There's lots of sacrifices one makes to recording one's dreams, but I think there there's something really powerful about it. And when you can look back over time, and let's face it, if we don't make aging work for us then we're kind of victims of it. Uh, there is something good about looking back and seeing a real shift in dream motif. Mm -hmm. what, what might that mean? I mean, and it's fair just to have general questions. We don't always have the answers to things, you know? Mm -hmm. Sometimes Dave and I are just asking questions, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great. I think that'll do it for this particular episode. I'll be thinking about that big cats need protection send us your thoughts folks before we go i want to throw this out there but the butterfly in your mouth at gmail.com is our email address and you know we're going to have this meet up on the 17th we'd love for you all to show up and have some beers and hang out but uh, feel free to get in touch with me if you have thoughts about any of this uh, i'd like a little bit of back and forth but that's all i got to say for this episode so i'm gonna sign off and Chris, if you got anything to say, uh, we'll wrap it up. No, here. no, just give us feedback, please. We, uh, you know, we we are uh, we are trying to listen, and uh, we're all trying to listen. Hopefully, mm -hmm. and listening is also, you know, as we listen, so do we speak. As we read, so do we write. You know, it's all one circuit of communication, one meditation of being part of being here. And that means part of being other people's lives. So thank you for joining us.